Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, I'm Brianna Seely, producer for Offscript Health. Welcome to the heart of healthcare. Before we get started today, I'd like to tell our listeners about another show on the Offscript Health podcast network. FUMS. FUMS is a podcast providing information, inspiration, and motivation for living your best life with multiple sclerosis. Join host Kathy Reagan Young for interviews with doctors, researchers, scientists, patients, caregivers, legislators, and more in the pursuit of answers. Check out the most recent episode on intermittent fasting with Cynthia Thurlow, a nurse practitioner, CEO, and founder of the Everyday Wellness Project. Intermittent fasting isn't just about skipping meals. Cynthia explains what intermittent fasting is, its effect on her own health, and the types of fasts that are available. For more information, visit offscript.com shows. The link will be in our show notes. Enjoy the show. everyone, and welcome to The Heart of Healthcare. Today, I'm talking to Ann Wojcicki, who started 23andMe in 2006 after a decade in healthcare investing. She set out to empower consumers with access to their own genetic information and to create a way to generate more personalized information so that commercial and academic researchers could better understand and develop new drugs and diagnostics. Today, 23andMe has built one of the world's largest databases of individual genetic information. They have genotyped over 12 million customers, have over 50 therapeutic programs in process, and have two programs in phase one clinical trials. And thanks for being here today. I want to start with your position and your thoughts on our healthcare system today. I've heard you say that the U.S. healthcare system is a communist system. Can you tell me more? I love that you um, that you got that <laughs> that quote. The U.S. healthcare system is like an unusual system, and not something that you would ever strategically design. But it's very much about a system that makes decisions for you. You know, people look to, or actually, they, don't look, they look to their physician to make decisions. Insurance companies often make decisions for you. Hospital policies can make decisions for you. And almost very rarely is that decision or the fact that there was choice is almost never trickled down to you. So I, I lived in Poland in 92 and it reminds me always of that because I, I remember going to a grocery store once with one of my roommates and he was like, I don't understand. Like, how do you pick dishwashing detergent. Like everyone says they're the best. And it was like, it was such an interesting moment because I realized like he didn't know how to make a decision. 
and and how to how to like figure out like the marketing from what's going on. And I realize in healthcare there's something similar. Like people are not trained. They don't know how to make decisions about themselves. And they're really reliant on a healthcare provider. And I think that in some ways the healthcare world has made this assumption that you are not capable of making decisions about themselves. Like you need to have the white coat, you need the degree, you need me to make your decisions. And I think those days are over. And I frankly, I find a lot of the decision-making insulting and not always in my best interest. And I think that's also where if you look at incentives of hospitals or of physicians or of others, like we're not always aligned with our incentives and it's also not always reflective of my personal choice. So I'm a huge believer in a self-pay direct-to-consumer market because I think the best way that you're going to have a healthcare system that is reflective of what you actually want is to have a true connection between you and the provider. So like, you, like, and have you be the actual payer for those services, but also be seen truly as a partner so that you are given choice and that you understand the consequences and that information is delivered to you in such a way that you can understand it. And that we have a system that actually believes in your potential and is not kind of looking down on you as like, oh, wow, you are incapable of understanding this. So I do think that there's this opportunity for a pretty radical shift in how we're approaching and have the healthcare world be more and more of a partnership with the consumer and less top down. And I think it's the responsibility of the consumer to step up more and more and take that ownership. But we have to create those tools for people to be able to like to learn about themselves and to, to be able to take that ownership. So how can better understanding genes and genetics help improve healthcare? What's interesting is that we are all, like, we all have different risks. And like, I mean, that's why healthcare is so interesting. It's like, we all manifest, you know, how we're healthy and how we get sick in different ways. And we all have different weaknesses and different strengths. So one of the clues about what those strengths and weaknesses are is your genetics. And your DNA helps you understand, you know, are there potentially medications that you should avoid? how you potentially want to avoid do or change dosing, if there's diseases that you're potentially higher risk for, and then things that you can actually do to mitigate that risk. Or if you have a condition, potentially better ways of managing it. So I think, you know, it's kind of when you think about blood tests, like your, your doctor leverages a blood test as a tool to help manage you. You know, you don't present, you don't walk in and say, like, look like you have high cholesterol you have to get a measurement. And I think there's something similar with your DNAs. You want to be able to get this information and it's going to be a tool to help manage your health. And I think yeah. the biggest issue that's kind of percolated, like since we've started the company 16 years ago, is genetics hasn't really been adopted outside of oncology and outside of pregnancy. And I think largely because the system that we have today doesn't reward and doesn't pay for prevention. Yeah. So for instance, if you never get type 2 diabetes, no one's going to make money. Mm -hmm. But there's all kinds of ways to monetize you actually having a disease. And is that why you think it's not part of primary care today? I have seen, I mean, what, one of the things that I learned from my Wall Street days is that you can very quickly drive adoption with reimbursement. Mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. like back in the day when <laughs> there's things like LASIK, the eye surgery, 
you know, doctors made $200 a pop. So, I mean, it was just like incredible adoption. Um, There was another example of um, drug eluding stents when those came out and just the reimbursement, like there was just an immediate adoption from the bone marrow or the bare metal to the drug eluding. Um, And so there was scientific data to support it as well. But like part of the reason why it was adopted is because of the reimbursement. And there's a lot of examples of scientific data doesn't necessarily drive adoption unless there's money that goes with it. And I think you can point to like the diabetes prevention program that the government funded, CDC funded, had unbelievable data showed that, you know, you can really reduce the likelihood of having type 2 diabetes. But because it's, you know, it's a behavior change program, it's not a medication, it takes time, was never well reimbursed, it hasn't been adopted nearly in the same way as like medical intervention like metformin has been adopted. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, cancer, genetics, pregnancy, you know, carrier screens, et cetera, kind of being part of the system because there's the reimbursement piece. These all obviously go through the physician, right? Like the prior auth and the insurance reimbursement. You literally set out to go direct to consumer before going direct direct to consumer was cool before anybody was doing it. And I remember like when I took a test really early on and I just remember hearing, I don't know, some early criticism, like no one's going to pay for this. It's only for like the worried well. Consumers won't understand their results. Like is giving consumers this this info responsible? You guys have come a long way that the market has kind of caught up to you, right? Like in a lot of ways, consumer going direct to consumer is the default now. Can you talk about how like this evolution has happened because of your work and also just a natural evolution of people's comfort levels buying products, healthcare products directly? Even hearing you talk, it makes me feel kind of tired. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I do. I mean, it's it's been such a it's been such a crazy journey. I think back on those early days and there was one the first American Society of Human Genetics meeting we went to, we were not welcome. And there was a couple I remember there was an article that was written just about how much they did not like us. And and we had to, you know, I had one person I remember we were having dinner with him and he actually got up and then left. He was like, I'm just like so appalled with what you're trying to do. <laughs> um, um, so wow. I think it's, you know, I think that there was a question. Um, we started direct to consumer because I felt like the only way you're going to drive adoption in the type of scale that we wanted to do was really to democratize it and make it accessible directly to people and make it affordable. And one thing I had seen in other countries like India and Brazil, where there was more of a cash pay market that you really like you could you could offer care that was affordable and people would come and do it like people I, I going back to that communist idea like i do think that people given the right set of tools and the right information that they can step up that they can learn something that they can adopt it and i think one of the fundamental things that i have the disagreement with like especially in those early days with the medical world was really like what is the capability of the of you the individual and that's where I almost took offense, like the idea that my physician doesn't believe in me, like they don't believe in you, that you're capable of understanding it, that you're going to make the right choices. And you think about like my mom's a a school teacher and you would never approach a kid with the ideas like you're never going to get this, like you're not worth investing in. 
And that's kind of was the approach that the medical world I felt like was taking was like, yeah. you're not going to get this. And so, you know, the, the, the early days were tough and, and I'm like incredibly grateful. The scientific advisors we had, I think really helped us make good decisions and have a scientific credibility so that I could argue with data. And the core idea that we had is that there was a lot of hypotheses. Like people would say, oh, you know, people are going to be so distraught with their Alzheimer's results. And I'd say, well, show me the data where they actually mm. are. And what I learned to do with was really argue with data. And we, from the earliest days, we set up an infrastructure to gather the data, get the feedback. We worked with Robert Greene at Harvard to understand, like, do people understand the information? Mm -hmm. Are they anxious? How are they doing this? And so when we did, I'd say the culmination of, you know, the discord was when we got our FDA warning letter. And in some ways, the fact that we did not fold, but rather that we persevered and we, mm. like, we worked through it was sort of a brand defining moment for us because it showed like one, we're not going away yeah. and that we're going to fight for the rights of the consumer. But my biggest victory is that we proved that people are capable of getting it on their own yeah. and we proved it with data. Now, I remember the Alzheimer's interface where you had to like read something. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was like almost like a warning. Like this is big information you might be learning. Can you talk about it, what it was? kind of getting that information. I, I don't know if it's changed over the last couple of years, but there was like some sort of gate in order to get that info. We still have, we have additional layers of consent. I think part of the, the philosophy of the company is that I never want you to be surprised. Okay. I want, I want you, like, I want you to join 23andMe. And that's why we have so many consents. Like I don't, I never want to, there's no aha moment where I'm trying to like, gotcha. Like, I want you to be a true partner. So like, I want you to consent, like, do you want to consent for research? Yes or no. Do you want your Alzheimer's report? Yes or no. And we see like the Alzheimer's reports and the breast cancer report and Parkinson's, like people will pause mm -hmm. and, and think about it. And I think that's actually a sign of success for us is that yeah. I don't want to give information to you if you don't want it. And, yeah. and the choice should be yours. I think what's interesting is the area where there's the least... Like we have a warning, but people tend to never think it's them is really on DNA relatives <laughs> where yeah. you, yeah. you open that up and you're like, you have a warning. You may find out that you're not related to someone that you think you're related to and no one thinks it's going to be them. Yeah. Um, but that's actually relatively common. Yeah. Well, a study came out a few years ago from the UK showing that one out of 10 are wrong about the identity of their biological father. So if I do the math right, that means like hundreds of thousands of 23andMe customers have opened up their ancestry report to find out that they're, who they thought was their dad is not biologically their dad. I would say like the temp, that 10% number makes sense to me. And so if you think about the consequences of that means like if you go back three generations, everyone in their family has somebody Oh, who wow. is going to yeah. be a surprise. So when people ask me like, oh, do you hear about these yeah. stories often? I'm like, pretty much every day. And if you're a customer and you don't have a story yet, like yeah. just sit back and relax and the story will come your way. Um, exactly. It's remarkably common. And it could be other things like there's the movie that just came out, Our Father, about you know, yeah. sperm donors. And, and people find siblings or relatives or the adoptees. So there's all kinds of surprises. Um, but I have to say, it's, it's one of the most rewarding parts of the job is that 
you reconnect family and it's, yeah. it's a pretty amazing experience when that happens. Yeah. I'm so the father movie is interesting. We were talking about it, about how the, so for anybody who hasn't heard about this movie, I haven't watched it, but it's about this fertility clinic doctor in Michigan who was using his own sperm for his patients and all these now maybe 40 to 50 year old adults are learning that he's their biological father. And I'm just, can you imagine over the last like decade as he's like learning about 23andMe and learning about the rise of like consumer genetic testing, he's like, oh shit, I'm going to get caught. Well, I, I do. Cause I get, I got, I get a lot of customer letters and I, and I read them and yeah. I would say that when I think about customers who are angry, like overwhelmingly people, people appreciate transparency, even when it's hard, but you absolutely have an era when people thought like they had a secret and it could be hidden. Yeah. And, and I feel bad for people sometimes where they said I was a sperm donor and it was always under lock and seal. And suddenly they're in their seventies or eighties and, and you're mm -hmm. right. Like you can't, it's there, there isn't that same sense. There, there's not a, there's no that, anonymity, right? You can't enforce it. So I do, and I get letters and I definitely, like it, it disrupts lives. I, I definitely can see that, you know, it's, it's not something that they planned. Um, but it's, you know, I think this is the generation where suddenly you have the great reveal. And I always give the analysis, like, or the comparison, like, what if you had never seen a mirror before? And then suddenly a mirror was introduced and now everyone can see themselves. So mm -hmm. that's kind of what's happened here is like, there's suddenly this ability for you to look into your past in a way that you never could before. And we are at a really interesting point in time of that, like the great reveal. And there will, there will never be a time where there's those types of secrets that get like that are, that remain secret. Like yeah. you're always going to have transparency going forward. Yeah. And there was a, a bill recently in Colorado making anonymity in gamete donation illegal. So in Colorado, you cannot be an anonymous donor. And I think other states are going to follow because it's 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 a false promise from any sperm or egg agency, right? Like if they promise the donors that they're going to be anonymous, like that's just not possible. Yeah, um, it's totally, it's not. I mean, I think that in some, I haven't seen those bills, but it, it makes sense. Like the world's just shifted. Like you can't, yeah. you can't have that. And, yeah. and in some ways, like people, like I said, I've, I've, I've talked to so many of these customers now, like people should be really proud. And some was like, like when you've been a donor, like being like, again, I understand that there's that world where some people want privacy, but it's, they've empowered a lot of amazing lives. So that's yeah. what we see mostly. We'll be right back after the break. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So what is the typical kind of user value prop? Are they coming in for ancestry and staying for the health sites or what are they really looking for because this product is so broad now in the insights you're giving people? It is very broad, I have to say. People definitely come either for ancestry or for health and it kind of depends on what their background is, like what they've heard about. Ancestry is naturally very viral. Like if you could, like people love talking about Neanderthal online. They love talking about <laughs> the connections that they found. Yeah. You know, people don't talk as much about like, hey, uh, you know, I found I was a BRCA carrier or I found that mm. I had like elevated for type 2 diabetes. So, but people who, you know, more and more like, and you see this sort of from, you know, some of the macro, you know, search trends that are happening out there is that people recognize that genetics is a core part of your health and it's part of your prevention. So while it's only part of cancer really and pregnancy, just that bit of knowledge is actually helping, I think, grow the market. And I think there's definitely a world where it is coming into primary care. And you see some of these initiatives in the UK, you see it in some academic centers. And so I do think more and more people are starting to think about that and saying like, wow, like not all 40 year olds are at the exact same risk for colon cancer. Why are we all told the exact same set of recommendations? Like, do I really need a mammogram and that additional radiation, yes or no. So I, I think it's like, I do think that people are starting to recognize like one size fits all recommendations don't match what they have in the rest of their life. Like mm -hmm. everything in your life is personalized. Like why is my healthcare the exact same? Like I just went to yeah. my 25th college reunion and I can look around the room and I could say, we have not all invested in our health in the same way. So does everyone need the exact same set of recommendations or should it be customized? And that's yeah. why I would say, we have that ability now to customize. Tell us about your vision for crowd-based research, something that you've been spending a lot of time on. Crowd-based research has been, I mean, it was really core part of the company when we started it. And again, also from my Wall Street days, I would see clinical trials start. There's tons of money that goes into starting it. And then, then it's taken down. It's like started and then it's taken down. And also clinical trials one of the hardest parts of a clinical trial is finding a patient. And so the idea of 23andMe was like, well, how do you just, you know, crowdsource it? How do you find people online? How do you keep people engaged? How do you just have hundreds of millions of people who are just involved where you can just reach out to them, just email? Like all the other, like everyone else seems to be doing this. Like it should be, like you should be able to have a new way of doing clinical trials and, and, and research. So 23andMe started in 2009 with the idea that we could ask people if they want to opt into research and we would 
asked them lots of questions about themselves. And one of the areas where we really pioneered was on self-report data, you know, mm. that you don't actually have to have a medical record. You could actually get self-report. And again, power to the individual, like you're actually quite capable of self-reporting. So we could get self-report data that's incredibly accurate and we can recruit millions of people now into an online research platform. And one of the things, because we had this idea from the very beginning, 23andMe has always been structured for research. So I can easily run a query if I want to look at an analysis on African-American women with chronic kidney disease in this age range. I have all that data and then I can look at what are all the other conditions potentially they have? What are the genes associated in that, in that community? So there's all kinds of ways now we can actually look at that data. So we publish extensively. We have over 200 publications that have come from the data set. We partner extensively with the academic world. And now we actually have our own therapeutics team looking to see, can we actually get these genetic insights and translate those into novel therapies that are going to benefit our customers and the world at large? I mean, other than it being kind of fun to answer those questions that will pop up, how do you envision consumers being kind of like rewarded for participating in research? It's, that's a really good question because I think people often have this idea that like, okay, people need to be paid or they want to be rewarded. And if you look at things like a bone marrow transplant, like if you had a friend who needed a bone marrow transplant and you were doing a bone marrow drive, people step up and they, they want to help each other. And I think fundamentally your health is really the ultimate equalizer of humanity. Like everyone gets sick. Like everyone gets COVID. Like everyone is going to die. Everyone's going to have some kind of condition. Like everyone sees their family members suffer at one time or another. And so I do think that there's an empathy where people want to help and that people actually do want to want to participate because they know it's going to help their community and they know it's eventually going to help them. So early on in the company, 23andMe did a sarcoma research project, and we invited a number of the sarcoma participants over to 23andMe. And we asked them, like, should we pay you for research? Like, if we do a research project, should we pay you for research? And I remember the woman looked at me and she said, Anne, I'm going to be dead in 12 months. So I'm telling you now, I want you to do something meaningful. Like, I want you to do something that's either going to benefit me or it's going to benefit my children. But don't let my data and don't let my experience go to waste. And mm. don't, don't insult me with like a $25 check. Yeah. Like I, I, I care more about the mission. And I think one of the most important things for me with 23andMe has really be leading the company to always focus on the mission. That mm. we always care. Like we are a passionate, fierce advocate for what is best for you. And we always have that angle when we're doing research. We always have that angle when we're doing product development. And we make all of our decisions based on like what's truly in that best interest of the customer. Mm -hmm. So the greatest reward I can give a customer is to give them a healthier life. Yeah. And so what percent of the customers actually participate in the research that have like this altruistic motive to, to help? Over 80% of people opt into research. So it's not a default. Mm -hmm. um, they, they opt in and then they take questions. And mm -hmm. what's amazing as well is like when we go to customers who have a specific condition, they answer those questions. 
Mm-hmm. So again, part of it, when you think about personalization, if I come to you and I say like, oh, you, you, know, you tell me you have asthma and I send you a survey about asthma, you're kind of, you're inclined to take it and you're almost excited about it because you know that you suffer from yeah. a condition and you want to help. So yeah. that's one thing that's amazing. Like I look at our COVID study, we launched that in the early days of the pandemic and we very quickly got a million people to take the survey. And the vast majority of those people had not had COVID which is amazing to think about, like all these people were taking the survey who did not have a condition, but they wanted to help. And it was actually really helpful to have them as controls. And then we ended up having hundreds of thousands of people who did have COVID, but it was amazing to me that we had, you know, over a million people who did not have it, who took the survey. So people want to participate. And so long as you make participating in research, like a really easy, painless process, people will do it. Yeah. And it is, I mean, I I always, when I log in to kind of look up something, whenever I get like that today's quick question, it just makes it really easy. You guys have like almost gamified it. Like it, it makes it kind of fun to yeah. answer the questions. We tried. And I think what's, what's also interesting about those quick questions is how powerful they are. So for instance, we asked the question, are you a morning person? Or are you a night owl? And with that simple question, we replicated all of the genes associated with circadian rhythm that they'd won the Nobel Prize for that was like years of research. And in like one question, you could replicate that finding. So Mm. it's one of those things that because we have this very nimble platform, we can experiment, like we can test out different questions and see what does it find. And then you can keep iterating in different ways that you ask the question. So it's a powerful platform because it allows you to almost A-B test in research and make sure and like see how you're doing it and then, you know, verify that data against other data sets and, and move forward. Yeah. And no one likes the subject more than talking about themselves, right? <laughs> like, oh, like for so- sure. People <laughs> love, I mean, I think, I think like when I think about also the future of the product is like more and more like 23B should be all about you. So answer as many questions and then we should give you more and more insights about you and then let you, like the greater you, like be able to participate in all the research because yeah. of all the data that you've given us. So there, there is like a true benefit. Like the more we crowdsource and the larger 23Me grows, there is really this global benefit that will help the world. Yeah. And how do you guys come up with what you want to study next? Like there was like a cilantro one that you guys did. Like there's so, such a broad array of like genetic traits that you're looking at? Like, how do you decide which ones you want to pursue? Well, in some ways, because this is also what's very different than academics. Like we don't, because I have people and they're around and they're interested in taking questions easy. Like I don't have, like our survey team doesn't have to fight about like, well, what question are we going to prioritize next? Like we have, like we will sometimes solicit from everyone in the company. Like what's a question that you want to ask? So like cilantro would be one that I would want. I asked, I put out the question about like, do you have any cavities? Because I have no cavities. I was just curious, like how many people don't have cavities? So everyone kind of has their own pet question that you can put out. And because it's so easy to do it, and it's so easy to generate data, uh, you don't have to overly worry about it. What we do fight about in-house is the prioritization. We have some longer in-depth surveys and how we prioritize those to different individuals. So based on sort of the intake information that we'll get, you might see a different set of surveys that are prioritized for you versus what are prioritized for me. And frankly, like that's what should be reflective. If you have asthma and I have IBD, 
then you should get the asthma survey and I should get the IBD survey. Yeah. So if somehow we could tie it into our, the EMRs that you can, you would just kind of pull, you would just know this data automatically. Oh, you talk. I mean, that would be amazing. And we do talk about that. Like, I think, you know, we recently acquired a company Lemonade. So we have the ability now to deliver care and they do have a medical record. So we, we do, we are thinking a fair amount now about like, well, what does the future of the medical record look like? Like we're already collecting all this self-report data and to have a medical record, that's actually like, it's about you and you have a voice in rather than like a medical record that's optimized for billing and insurance, you know, it's going to be really interesting to pioneer. So that's something I am quite excited about. Yeah. So Lemonade Health is a telehealth uh, platform. What's the care path that you're envisioning for integrating these two brands? We acquired Lemonade really because I wanted to get into the delivery of genomic health. And I see like kind of all the things I talked about, like no one's really broadly adopted genomic medicine. And I now have over 13 million customers and they have their DNA, obviously. So I have the ability to deliver insights and actually have a care team that can help guide them more specifically. And it's really clear, like, I do not want to be in urgent care. Like if you have a UTI, like there's so many great options, like that's not us. What Mm -hmm. 23andMe and the future of our care product should be is really about being that partnership to any kind of care provider where we really own and we are that experts in genomic medicine. So we can help if you have a higher risk for chronic kidney disease or you're a higher risk for type 2 diabetes or you have TTER amyloidosis and your physician doesn't know what that is, then we have the ability to like create that content that one, you're going to understand, but also how do we actually now partner with your care provider so that we can actually help educate them as, about it as well. So the other thing about Lemonade is it also has pharmacy. And one of the great promises of genetics is the ability to have pharmacogenetics, which is really the integration of your genetic, you know, your, your DNA, plus how the responds, how it metabolizes medications. So mm-hmm. common medications, like a number of antidepressants, a number of, uh, of the statins, all have pretty significant pharmacogenetic reports, meaning that mm-hmm. you either should take a different one or you potentially are higher risk for an adverse event. So we now have that ability to integrate your genetic information with pharmacy and a prescriber. Mm-hmm. Can you do that with birth control? Is there like a, a birth control options that could be better or worse for you based on your genetics? Well, one of the big things that, that aggravates me that is never incorporated is your clotting risk. So mm-hmm. like, you know, if you're prescribed birth control, they tell you you're at increased risk for clotting. Mm-hmm. So if you have a genetic risk factor for a clotting condition, then you yeah. potentially want to take a different type of oral contraceptive. Yeah. So that's an exact, and even if you're pregnant, you want to potentially, you're like, you're going to be routed in a slightly different way because you're at higher risk for clots. So mm-hmm. that's a good example where I would say the existing healthcare system has kind of looked at and yeah. said, it's cheaper to just manage your clots rather than to prevent it. As a patient perspective, I'd rather just never have the pulmonary embolism rather yeah. than like just successfully treat it. Like that sounds, <laughs> that just sounds like a better, that's yeah. what I said. I was like, by not being a consumer directed healthcare world, 
decisions yeah. like that get made like just as cheap to treat it as it is to prevent it but like sure. no no sense of like well that doesn't sound like a fun experience yeah well and knowing your health risks i imagine if you're like you know 19 years old getting birth control even if you have like a higher clotting risk you probably have never had a medical issue so you wouldn't know right <laughs> like a lot of the health risks only come to surface if you don't do a genetic test they're really only coming to surface through aging exactly and I think one of the areas that we think a lot about that does tie in in a really interesting way with the ancestry side of the product is that you have your family, you know, a good percentage of our customers have family in 23andMe. So mm -hmm. one of the opportunities is to actually pull out your family health history. So for instance, like if you know, you might not necessarily have known that you're like, I wouldn't necessarily know that like, oh, did my mother take oral contraceptives and did she ever have a clot? Like that might've never come up in discussion. But if you actually have a structured way of actually connecting with everyone and actually collecting a family health history, you might be able to look at that as well. And then in combination with all of your genetics to really understand like what truly is your true risk. Are you guys ever going to do like whole genome sequencing or is that kind of unnecessary? That is, I, that, you know, it's so interesting. That comes up all the time and people, <laughs> I, it's almost like, um, I joked something, it's almost like the kids being like, when are you going to stop driving me to school in the Toyota and get the Ferrari mom? Um, <laughs> like I, I, and it's, it's almost like academic ego. Like it's the benefit, like the chip that we have is absolutely the older technology, but it's so phenomenal. It's so accurate. It's so inexpensive and it provides like you can build it in such a way that it covers the good majority of what a good screen should have like what what's going to be applicable to most of the population so mm -hmm. where we do not where we would refer you on to either a whole genome sequence or a panel is if you tell me for instance that you are a non ashkenazi jewish woman with her like a family a strong family history of breast cancer uh, like then I might say, hey, we might want to test you on a panel for some of the rare genetic variants. Mm -hmm. um, same thing with you said like, oh, everyone in my family has a heart attack at 50. We might want to test you for some of the common, some of the known genetic issues that are more rare that you can only really see on a sequencing panel. But what we see is that, and all the studies have supported this, it's about one to 3% of people who are going to learn something meaningful on an exome panel or on a whole genome sequence. So what that means is like, I could potentially charge you a lot more money. So like charge you hundreds more dollars, but only one to 3% of you are gonna learn something valuable. Yeah. So the path I think that we'll take going forward is more and more about how is it that I can look at your family history risk and then recommend to some individuals, here's a test that you should get. And for other individuals, like it might not, you're always available to get it, but it might not be worth the money for you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, you're doing the public health math. You're like we could yeah. raise the prices. Yeah. Fewer people could actually purchase our product and only one to 3% would be better off, would find some novel information they wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah. And I think in some ways it's less on the public health math that more on like a consumer. Like yeah. my, I just know my consumers don't necessarily want to pay for additional information if so few are going to benefit. And mm -hmm. I think that's where you can always make it available and say like for mm -hmm. the people who have the disposable income who want to pay for it, they should absolutely go like here's access to it. And for certain individuals where we say, hey, you really have an increased risk. Can we actually work with the right kinds of partners to get you that information? And could that then actually be paid for by your insurance? 
So yeah. all these things are types of areas where we're exploring, but we realize like 23andMe is not going to do everything. And as we are entering into the genomic medicine, the clinical stage, as we're entering into the genomic medicine, the clinical stage, we will work out like what are those partnerships with the right companies so that you can get the sequencing when you need to. Yeah, that makes sense. So what has been one of the more surprising things that you've learned running this company over the last decade and a half? I would say one of my biggest surprises is that we were going to be front and center on the discussion of race. Mm, how so? People learn that they're of Jewish ancestry and Ash- Jewish ancestry and that they have African ancestry and mm-hmm. Native American. Two, like some of the most common things that people want to learn about. So it kind of gets to the question is like, well, what is actually the definition of like being Jewish? What's the definition mm-hmm. of being African-American? Like, and what is that definition of race? And is like race is, you know, an artificial construct. So it's, you know, it's a label that's been applied, but like, how is it that you can actually break that down and start to look at people's genetic ancestry and understand the complexities around that? So, you know, I, I had a fun meeting in the early days with the American Association of Reform Rabbis where I, I brought all the different, like a, a number of different, um, you know, ancestry compositions where I showed like someone could be 5% Jewish, they could be 20% Jewish, they could be 95% Jewish. Mm-hmm. And I was like, brought it to them. I was like, listen, you love, like the Jewish community loves the Talmud, loves to debate. What do you say? Like people are going to be walking into your temple, like shalom. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they were like, holy cow. Like, I have no idea. <laughs> it, was, it was really yeah. funny because they were like, really like eyes wide open. Like what? And I think it kind of gets to that question is like, what is like, what does identity mean? And, and how do we, like, we see ourselves and you grow up with stories, but then you can also look at your genetic ancestry and that may or may not match whatever you see in the mirror or whatever you've been told. Yeah. And I think one of my big hopes with this is that you can actually change the process of racial profiling in the medical system and at some point have true genetic ancestry. And in some ways, like look at people and say, listen, you're not just, you're not just, you know, a 45 year old black woman. You are like, these are the, these, like, these are your genetic risks and this is your genetic ancestry. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where the world is going to go at some point. Yeah. That's interesting. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the Mormon church has, is really big on genetics and family history, right? The Mormon church is very big on genetics and ancestry, mostly because they have, they're really interested in building the universal family tree. So less about the health side, but more about how, and it is a really interesting problem. Like, I mean, you, you should be able to connect everyone on the planet to, to each other. Like one day there should be an app where you can say like, Hey, like, how, like, like, let's go and see how we are, how are we connected? Yeah. Um, But every single person should be able to be connected in that way. Yeah. As long as, yeah, as long as you're not like connected to your, your partner in a way that's a little too close. Well, every, every, every so often that happens, but less, less so. In, oh my uh, gosh. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Well, that's we, funny. Cause my husband and I both had uh Bavaria in ours, which we had never really heard of. And so we were like, oh shit. But then it wasn't, wasn't an issue, but <laughs> it was just funny that we had that one kind of overlapping, random overlapping location in our ancestry. Close call, close call, yeah. but, but yeah. it's, you know, people learn all kinds of interesting things. And I think that's like one of the issues that came up with that movie, Our Father, was the fact that you had so many siblings who did not know each other, who were in the same age range and in the same city. 
So yeah. like that's where you do get some public health worries because you're not, sure. you don't want to intentionally be dating your family members. Yeah. And if you don't know, I mean, you wouldn't even know to go on a donor registry. So how would you? Exactly. So we're, we need to wrap up soon. So uh, I, I want to know what advice you have for founders kind of starting out in the consumer health business kind of today. I think one of the things that I see that's really hard in these consumer companies is that they look and feel consumer, but they're still taking money from the insurance. So it's unclear to me who's your customer. Mm-hmm. And I think in, in that capacity, I think it's, it's hard to ever be a true direct-to-consumer company if you, you don't have to get them to buy your product. So mm-hmm. I, I think that's like one, one area I would just like, I would love to see more companies be clear. Like, are you, who's your end customer and being really clear about that? I think secondly, I would say consumers are really full of potential, but I would there's a huge desire and a huge need for transparency and trust. And I think it's really important that all, all the companies, like the new breed that's coming, that we all collectively think about, like, it's so critical that we all build trust. Because right now, like, no one wants to believe CDC. No one wants to believe NIH. Like, it's, and you can get all kinds of celebrities who step in and, like, they become a stronger voice for healthcare. So, it's really important that the, I think the new breed of companies that's coming, like really, like one of the top priorities has to be about trust and build like trust and transparency with the, with the consumer. So what's next for you and for 23andMe now that you guys are public? We have our hands full with the idea on getting really into genomic medicine and executing on clinical care. So I think what you should see from us in the future is really going to be about as how we execute on on integrating 23andMe with Lemonade, how we actually execute on genomic care. And I'm really excited about opportunities on pharmacy. So mm-hmm. there'll be a number of things that we have to do. And, and again, it's going to be hard. You have to change consumer behavior. Consumers have to know that 23andMe is more involved in health. We have to get people to think about a self-pay kind of model. So there's a lot to do, but yeah. I think it's really exciting. And I think also, you know, I can't forget the other half of the company, which is we do have an incredibly exciting pipeline of therapies that are underway. And these are all from insights that we found in the data set. And, you know, there's been like an interesting recent publication that just came out talking about how over 60% of the therapies that went successfully through the FDA all had a genetic foundation. And there's other been data, uh, there's been other data out there about, you know, starting with a genetic foundation makes you more than twice as likely to succeed in therapeutic. So... I feel like we have this opportunity to either one, help our customers prevent because they have a genetic insight, or we're going to be able to develop successful treatments that's based on genetic insights. And so we're going to be able to help better manage you if you do have a condition. So I really look at us holistically, like, let's go and figure out what the genome means, like understand what is this code of life? And then how can we apply that to our life in ways that's really going to lead us to healthier, higher quality lives? Yeah. You're one of the few tech founders who took the company from idea to growth to IPO. Usually the CEO is replaced, the founder is replaced, but this seems like it's it's really your passion project. Do you see yourself kind of at the helm for forever? I don't see any reason to leave. I mean, I yeah. think I'm always open. Like if people, if someone could come in and do 
do a better job in one way or another. And we're always, again, we're always hiring and always meeting people. And I have plenty of weaknesses that my, my team can point out. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that we, we have a good balance and I like, mm-hmm. I love leading it. Like I definitely, I'm so passionate about it and I can't imagine anything else I would want to do. You know, I think that the, I, the fundamental idea that like, how, like you have this code and it represents all of life and we don't know what it means is endlessly fascinating to me. And if you can ever have enough data to really provide structure and, you know, guiding laws within biology, it would be amazing. So I think about that. Like, why would I ever want to do anything else? And and it's a big enough vision for you to grow into. It's a big enough. I I mean, I have my hands full. Like I, (laughs) between. You're not bored. I'm definitely not bored. I mean, look, there's always opportunity. Like as we've grown, we've been able to hire people who've been able to take on more responsibilities from me. Um, but I, like, I work with such amazing people. Like there's times I go in and I can get like an hour with like a very talented individual in marketing or in the science side or in therapeutics. Like it's just such a incredible luxury to be surrounded by like people who really know their area and you're constantly learning. And I think in any job, I mean, you must feel the same way. It's like, you're just constantly learning and there's, you're never bored when you are learning in that way. Absolutely. I I agree with that. So, uh, well, on on that note, to continue to learn and grow, it's been awesome talking to you today and following 23andMe and your work over the last decade and a half. Thank you so much for your time today, Anne. Thank you. Such a pleasure. Fun questions. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Heart of Healthcare. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Brianna Seely. Our intern is Antonella Sterniolo. Our host is Hallie Tecco. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Brianna Seely. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented... They'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.